Good morning, Lakeview Church. So good to be with you today. So glad that you are here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Williams. I get to serve as the lead pastor here. And whether this is your very first Sunday with us or whether this is your thousandth Sunday with us, I just want to tell you how grateful I am that you've taken time out of your weekend to be here with us this morning. So I just want to say welcome. We're so glad you're here, and I want to say thank you. Thank you for taking time to be here. And I do want to take a moment to look right into that camera and just welcome all of you who are joining us online. We're so glad that you've taken time out of your schedule to be with us as well. Whether you're watching this live in this moment or on demand sometime later, we are so glad that you're here. And for everyone here in the room, can we just say hi to those who who are joining us online by giving a round of applause. <clears throat> we are at the end of a short series that we've been walking through around the weeks of Easter, a series which I am calling Jesus Is, and today is the last installment in that series. This series really has come out of my own personal reflections leading up to the season of Easter. I just spent some time reading the story of Jesus again in the Gospels in the weeks leading up to Easter. And, and I was, as I was reading those stories again, stories I've read many times, I just had a deeper hunger to know more of who Jesus is, his character, his nature, his purpose, his work. And, and as I started kind of digging into the story again uh, for that purpose, I, there were just some things that started kind of coming out to me, kind of sticking out. And so I really wrote this series coming out of my own personal reflections leading up to Easter. We started this series on Palm Sunday just a couple of Sundays ago, and, and we talked about the, the nature and, and the character of Jesus. And remember, we started the series really by kind of looking at three truths about Jesus' nature. We said that Jesus is God. And we said we we're going to start with a high view of God, and we looked at John chapter 1, verse 1, which tells us that in the beginning, the Word was there, and that Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we said it's really important to recognize Jesus isn't just another human being. He's not even a special human being. Jesus is God. And then we went on from there to say that Jesus, the one who is God, became human. We looked at John 1.14, that the word became human and made his home among us. And we talked about Philippians chapter two, and we said that Jesus was God, but he did not consider his equality with God something to hold on to or to cling to, but instead he emptied himself and he, he made himself nothing. He humbled himself and he took human Form. And so we said Jesus is God, Jesus became human, and because of that, we know that Jesus is humble. Jesus is humble. <clears throat> Last week on Easter Sunday, we, we talked about three truths that really define the saving work of Jesus, and we kind of picked up where we left on Palm Sunday by saying that Jesus lived and it's just that realization that the word became flesh, became one of us. He, he decided to take on human form just like you and me and live on this planet. And he, he taught disciples and he taught the crowds and he healed the sick and he cast out demons and he raised people from the dead and he did all of these amazing things. And we just said it's important for us to understand that Jesus lived. 
But he didn't just come to live, he came to give his life. And we talked about the second truth, that Jesus died. And we said that Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was carried off by the leaders of the day. He was tried falsely, accused falsely, convicted falsely. And then he was beaten, he was bloodied, he was bruised, he was nailed to a cross. And there he breathed his last and he died. And then we said that they took him off of that cross, they buried him in a tomb, and then, and then they rolled a stone across the front of that tomb and they sealed its entrance so no one could get in. And on the third day, the power of God went into that tomb, rolled that stone away, and breathed life again into the body of Jesus. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and then Jesus was raised. And we talked about the, the, the passage in Matthew where the women go to the tomb early on Sunday morning and they go there to mourn. And, and when they get there, they see that the stone's been rolled away and, and there's someone there and they say, we know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he isn't here. He is risen just like he said he would. This is the reality of the saving work of Jesus. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was raised. I wanna just pick up from that moment that we left last week and just talk about after the resurrection, what is now true about Jesus? What are some post-resurrection truths that we need to understand about Jesus? And, and, and really, we just begin where we left off, that Jesus is victorious. Jesus is victorious. And, and you recognize that when Jesus gave his life on the cross, he was doing so to pay the price for your sins and mine and for the sins of the whole world. And after his death, and they buried him in that grave, and he was raised again to new life, it's at that moment, the moment of his resurrection, that Jesus literally defeated death, hell, and the grave. It's in that moment that he provided forgiveness for our sins and he provided a way for us to be set free so that we no longer needed to be held captive. In fact, the New Testament talks about the fact that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you if you are a child of God. And it is that spirit that sets you free and allows you to live the life that God has for you to live. Jesus is victorious. I love the way the Apostle Paul writes about it in the book of Colossians. This is what he says. He says, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Now, I know not everybody in this room watches sports, but when you watch sports, you, you don't want your team to just win by a little bit. I mean, that's, you'll take that, Right? I mean, if your team wins and a last second shot drives down the field and scores the touchdown as time expires, you're not going to trade that. You're going to say, we'll take that win. But what you really want, especially when they're playing your rival, you want them to destroy the other team. Amen. I mean, you want them to publicly shame them, make them feel bad they ever stepped on the field. That's what you want, right? And, and I know some people think of Jesus as meek and mild and non-competitive, but Jesus took the rulers and authorities that try to hold us captive and keep us from experiencing the life that God has for us to live. He brought them right out into the public and he shamed them. 
Yeah, that's worth an applause. This wasn't a close game. He didn't just pull it out at the end. Jesus shamed them publicly by winning victory over them. That's what his death and his resurrection is all about. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is not just victorious, he is exalted. Over this series, we've been going back to Philippians chapter two over and over and over again. Philippians chapter two is is this little passage of scripture. It's actually part of a letter. And it's a letter written by a leader in the first century. He was writing it to a group of Christians in the city of Philippi. And right in this letter, he actually includes the lyrics of one of the earliest hymns of the church. And this hymn really is centered on who Jesus is and the work that Jesus has completed. And we've been going back to it over and over again each week of this series because it tells all of the story. Your attitude, Paul says, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but instead he made himself nothing. Some translations say he emptied himself And he took on human form. He humbled himself and became like one of us. And as a human being, he became obedient to death, even death on a criminal's cross. And Philippians chapter 2 goes on to say that because of that, because Jesus was humble enough to become human and because he was obedient to die a criminal's death on the cross and because God raised him from the dead, God has exalted him. Philippians chapter two says that he elevated him to the place of highest honor and he gave him a name that is above every other name. Jesus is victorious. He took all of the spiritual forces of evil that want to keep you from becoming who God created you to be, brought them out into the public square, and he shamed them by winning victory over them. And because of that victory, God, his Father, elevated him to the place of highest honor. To say that Jesus is exalted is to say he is the highest, he is the greatest, he is the top. There is no one else beside him or beyond him or above him. He is exalted. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is exalted. And because of those two truths, Jesus is Lord. Again, Philippians chapter 2 says that he, he elevated him to the place of highest honor. He gave him a name that is above every other name. And at that name, every single knee will bow. On this earth and in heaven and under this earth, everywhere, in every place, every person that you could find, their knee will bow to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is victorious and Jesus has been exalted and Jesus is Lord. But have you ever really wondered what lordship means? What does it mean to say Jesus is Lord? Well, Jesus actually had a couple of conversations during his public ministry that really kind of shed some light on this idea of lordship. And I wanna, I wanna take you to these conversations. They both occur in Mark chapter 12. 
And we're going to look at two conversations that unfold in Mark chapter 12 to really kind of explore what does it mean to say Jesus is Lord. The first conversation occurs when some group, uh, a group of people come to Jesus and they want to know, should they pay taxes or not? I thought this was a fitting conversation for this weekend. <laughs> and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you probably should see your accountant because you got some taxes that you need to take care of this weekend. These people come to Jesus and they, they want to know about taxes. And I want to just read this, these verses for you and, and let you hear the conversation unfold. Mark chapter 12, beginning verse 13. Later, the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and you don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. When they handed it to him, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply completely amazed them. So again, your conversation about taxes. Hey, should we pay taxes or not? Right? And some of you are wondering, should we pay taxes or not? Okay. Should we, should we do this? And Jesus gives them this response, which kind of feels like a non-answer, doesn't it? I mean, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. We're going to talk about what that phrase means in just a few moments. But they were all amazed at what Jesus said. And, and it just reminds me, because Jesus always has the right answer. I mean, it's just, he's just good at this. He just, when they ask him questions, he just gives the right answer. And, and I think of right answers, like, you know, 10 hours after the conversation. <laughs> like, oh, I should have said that. That would have been awesome. And you can't go back and, and do it. You can't recreate the conversation. But Jesus, he always gives the right answer at just the right moment in just the right way. And that's why they would say of him, he spoke as one who had authority. They were always amazed at his answers. They were astounded, or sometimes they were silenced because Jesus knew exactly what to say. Now, coming out of this conversation, just a few verses later, there's another person who steps forward with another question of Jesus. And it seems like it's taking the conversation a different direction, but I actually think it flows in the conversation. This is going further than the first question that Jesus was asked. So I want to take you a little further down in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well, so he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, 
and with all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of religious law replied, well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth by saying that there's only one God and no other. I know it's important to love him with all my heart and with all my understanding and with all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. These are two different conversations, two different questions, but they're, they're very closely related to one another. Because in both of these questions and in both of these conversations, Jesus is trying to explain to people that when it comes to the issue of lordship, Jesus is demanding all of your life. He's demanding all of your worship. He's demanding all of your love. And he is demanding all of your devotion. He is saying, I am Lord and you should give me everything that you are. Now to help you understand maybe how to hear Jesus saying that in these conversations, you need to understand a bit of the context. And I don't know if you ever had a teacher when you were younger or maybe you have a teacher now who tells you to put your thinking cap on. You ever have anybody tell you that? Put your thinking. I just need you, just for the next couple minutes, just put your thinking cap on, okay? Because I want to give you a little bit of context around these conversations to help you understand what Jesus is really saying here. Because I think the conversation feels like it's about taxes, but it's actually about lordship. And it feels like the conversation is about understanding the law when in reality it is about discovering how to live. So I just need you to put your thinking caps on for a minute and stick with me as we walk through some of the context that sits underneath of this conversation. You see, the reality is, is that Jesus' day, his time on this earth, had really been shaped by hundreds and thousands of years of culture. And all of the culture in Jesus' day, even if you go all the way back to the Old Testament and trace it back, what you find is that outside of Israel, all of the other nations and people groups that surrounded Israel, they were what is known as polytheistic. They had many gods. And so if you lived in the Old Testament, life was quite complicated, because your, your village, your, the area where you live likely had a source of water, probably a river. And so if you were going to be able to live near that river, you needed to appease the river god. Because there was a god, people believed, in charge of that river. And you needed that river to not flood, because it would destroy where you lived. But you also needed it to not dry up, because you need to drink water. So the only way to keep the river the way it ought to be is to make sure that you were expressing appropriate love and devotion and honor and surrender to the river God. But as you were going down to the river to do that, you, you also would walk past the field. 
And you'd be reminded that there's a God of the soil. And you needed to make sure that you appease that God too because it doesn't do any good to have water if you can't grow crops. So you've got to make sure that you're giving appropriate love and appropriate devotion, appropriate honor to the God of the soil, the God of the field. And of course, doesn't matter if you've got water and great soil, if the sun doesn't shine in the appropriate amounts, you don't want the sun to, to burn the crops, but you also need the sun to make the crops grow. So you've got to have some time to worship and honor and love the sun God because you need him to do his part in the process. And, and while you're at it, you've got to remember the fertility God because you need to have children and you also need your flocks to reproduce so that you can have what you need to continue to propagate life into future generations. And so they weren't concerned with going to church for one hour on Sunday. They were going to church all the time. I mean, they were worshiping all kinds of gods to try to keep it all together. And not all of the gods were good. Some of them were evil. And so it was not only complex, it was dangerous. And life had a, an aspect of superstition about it. Because you gotta, you gotta do the right things, say the right things, be in the right places to keep all the gods happy. In the Old Testament, the Israelite God comes along and says, I'm the God who made heaven and earth. I made the soil. I made the river. I made the sun. You don't need to worry about these other gods. Your God's just one God, and he's God over everything. That's what made Israel different from all of the surrounding nations. Fast forward to Jesus' day, and now we have a new power on the scene known as Rome. The culture is still polytheistic. People are still worshiping all of these various gods, trying to keep all of them happy so that their life could function well. And Rome comes along and they are conquering everything in sight. I mean, they are taking over lands and people groups and tribes and villages everywhere they can. And, and, and Rome was smart. I mean, they weren't dumb. They, they literally came up with a genius idea that they were going to call their leader, Caesar, the, the physical manifestation of God. And so they came up with a saying, Caesar is Lord. And they would go into these other cultures. By the way, do you still have your thinking caps on? I just want to make sure you haven't taken them off because you got to stay with me here. They would go into these lands to conquer these people and they would say to the people that they have conquered, you can keep your gods. Keep worshiping them, keep loving them, keep expressing your devotion to them. We wouldn't want you to make your gods mad, but, but you are a part of Rome now. And so in order for you to identify the fact that you belong to a greater kingdom, you can keep your gods as long as you're willing to say, Caesar is Lord over all gods. You keep worshiping your God, keep appeasing your God, but when you do that, just also say, Caesar is Lord. And 
This was brilliant by Rome because what Rome was doing was they were allowing each individual people group to keep their own identity and their own customs and their own practices while making them subservient to the empire. And they were just continuing to expand. You keep your gods, just recognize Caesar as Lord over your gods. One of the clearest ways that a people group would identify that Caesar is Lord is by paying taxes. They would send their money, a portion of what income they had generated, back to Rome to say, we're still serving our gods, we're still doing our part out here on the edge of the empire, but we just want to acknowledge Caesar is Lord, here's our taxes. So some of you were thinking this was a question about the IRS, this is actually a question about lordship. Should we pay taxes or not, Jesus? Because it feels like If we pay taxes to Rome, we're acknowledging Caesar is Lord. We're actually saying, we're going to keep our God, but we're going to have another God above him named Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And again, Jesus' answer here is brilliant. I mean, it is is the best answer. Jesus says, you got a coin? And of course, someone's got a coin. They hand it to Jesus. Jesus holds the coin up in front of the crowd that's asked the question. And he says, whose image and inscription is on this coin? Well, they probably didn't even need to see a coin to answer that question. But Jesus wanted to make it really clear whose image and inscription is on this coin. And it's no, there's no doubt about it. Caesar's picture's on that coin. Because Caesar is Lord. And Jesus says, well, this coin must belong to Caesar. You should give that to him. Now, if he stops the phrase there, Jesus is saying, Caesar is Lord. But he doesn't stop there. He says, the coin belongs to Caesar. But if you find anything with God's image stamped on it, well, you should give that to God. Now, some of you have already made the connection in your mind. And some of you are saying, the punchline, please. Jesus is saying this coin belongs to Caesar, but your life belongs to God because you have been stamped with the image and name of God. I mean, coins are just the stuff of this world and give that to Caesar. But whatever you do, don't give your life to Caesar because your life belongs to the real God, the one who created you and made you and formed you. And then Jesus goes on to talk to this religious leader, this, this expert in the law, who says, what's the greatest commandment? And there was actual debate about this. 
Some people believed that, that the, the greatest commandment was, you should be holy as I am holy. And there were whole groups of people who would fight to have people keep even the smallest part of the law because they believed that if everyone would become perfectly holy, living out the law, then, then God's renewal for Israel would be ushered in. And there were others who would pick out other parts of the law and say, no, no, this is the most important commandment. And so this was something rabbis debated quite a bit. And so, so they asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? And, and this is where you, you see the connection of what Jesus has just said about taxes to what Jesus is now going to say about the greatest commandment. Because Jesus goes back to the Old Testament, to the book of Deuteronomy. And he pulls out a prayer of the Jewish people. It was the, the revelation of God that made them different from all of the other nations around them. It's a prayer known as the Shema. And it's just a simple prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all of your mind. It comes right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And Jesus just goes back there to say, because what, we, what God said back there is still true today. There's only one God. Caesar might think he's God, but he ain't. Only one God. Only one God. Now, there are lots of other people and lots of other things we try to make into God. But there's only one God. And he doesn't actually need you to believe he's God for him to be God. He's not waiting for your vote. He's not waiting for you to, to say he can be God. He is God, period. And that's what Jesus is saying. What's the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is built on this recognition that there is only one God. And because there is only one God, that one God deserves every part of who you are given to him in devotion and in love and in worship. You give him everything that you are and you hold nothing back from him because he is the only God that is. There is no other one. Give your coins to Caesar. Give your life to God. And when you think about what's the most important thing that you could do with your life, well, it's very simply this. Recognize there's only one God and he gets all of who you are. Which brings me to the most important question of today, which is who's on the throne of your life? Who's on the throne of your life? Now I know this isn't a throne, but we're gonna pretend that it is. There are lots of different things that you put in the seat called the throne of your life. For some of you, you just put yourself there. You're just like, I got this. This belongs to me. I'm going to sit on the throne of my life. And, and, and everything runs through me. Everything's about me. Everything's focused on me. Everything's because of me. I'll make the decisions. I'll call the shots. I'll run my life. I am on the throne. And that's a way that you can do it. I mean, lots of people do it. Some of you have done it, and you realize it wasn't working for you, and you've, you've changed. You, you've found a different way. 
So some of you put yourself on the throne. Some of you put, put your finances on the throne. It's just all about making more money, getting more stuff, becoming wealthy. And so that's the focus of your life. And you make all kinds of decisions. You'll, you'll ignore relationships. You'll let your marriage fall apart. You'll ignore your kids and you won't spend time with them because you just want more money. And so you will do whatever it takes to get that. Some of you take your kids and you put your kids on the throne of your life and you just make it your sole mission to love your kids, to worship your kids, to serve your kids. And you run them all over creation and they dictate your life and they tell you what you can and can't do and where you can and can't go. And it might sound like I'm exaggerating, except I know because I watch you. It's not an exaggeration. People put their kids on the throne of their life and they worship them. They love them. They honor them. They let them call the shots because whoever is on the throne of your life, that's the focal point. Everything runs through the throne. This is where the shots are called. This is where the decisions are made. This is how things get determined. So the question is, who is on the throne of your life? And if you're tracking with this sermon at all, you know that there's only one person who should sit on that throne, and it's not you. And it's not your kids, and it's not your finances, and it's not your marriage, and it's not your stuff. Jesus should be the one that is sitting on this throne. And you put Jesus on this throne. You make him the focal point. You let everything run through him. You let him determine how you're going to approach your marriage and how you're going to deal with your kids and how you're going to have a relationship with money. And you let everything that you are and everything that you do flow through Jesus Christ, who's on the throne of your life. But here's the thing. Some of you might be like me. Because I know Jesus should be on the throne, and I'll put him there. I, I really will. I mean, I want Jesus to be on the throne of my life. But then, then life turns up the pressure. I know this does not apply to any of you. But in my life, the pressure gets turned up every once in a while. And it feels to me like there are problems that I'm dealing with. Trials that I'm facing. Challenges that are in front of me. Relationships that are strained. I'm trying to figure out how are we going to pay that bill? My daughter just got engaged last weekend. I'm trying to figure out how are we going to pay that bill? <laughs> and life turns up the pressure and, and then here's what I do. I know none of you do this, but I do this. I come to the throne room of my life and I say, what's up, Jesus? Jesus. You got some room there? I just need a couple inches. How you doing, Jesus? I got these problems I'm dealing with. By the way, could you just scooch a little bit? That's, that's better. I, I, that, that's more comfortable for me. And then I'm trying to figure out how I can convince Jesus to deal with my issues in the way that I want them to be dealt with. 
And eventually, I go from just asking for a couple of inches of the throne to maybe sharing the throne with Jesus to just pushing Jesus off. I don't want him to go away. I want him to stay right here because now I want Jesus to serve me. I want to be on the throne, even if it's just for a little while, because Jesus, I know how to fix this. I know how to control this. I know how to take care of these problems and these issues that I'm dealing with. And, And what started with Jesus on the throne now ends up with me back on the throne asking Jesus to serve me. Now, I would never say those words, but that's how I live my life sometimes. And the question remains, who is on the throne of your life? And when you put him there, are you willing to let him stay there? Even when life turns up the pressure. Because there's only one Lord. And there's only one God. And he ought to be on the throne of your life. The throne of your life is not a two-seater. Some of you remember the bumper sticker that people used to put on their card, Jesus is my co-pilot. Heresy. Jesus doesn't want a co-pilot. He wants to fly the plane all by himself. And he doesn't need you to help him pilot from the throne. So three applications of what we've talked about today. One, don't divide your devotion. Don't divide your devotion. Jesus, when he taught about discipleship, said, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, well, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross and you're going to have to follow me. In other words, you're going to have to be all in. He went on to say that if you try to save your life, if you try to try to protect it and manipulate things so you get the life you think you want, well, you're going to lose your life. But if you're willing to lay your life down in that moment, you're going to find what it means to really be alive. And Jesus was so clear about the cost that he was asking people to pay that he actually said, I don't want you just to say yes in the heat of the moment. I actually want you to count the cost. You wouldn't build a building without making sure that you had everything you need to finish the project. And you wouldn't go out in war to fight a battle unless you knew you had a real chance to win. So before you say yes to me, count the cost. Why? Because Jesus knew he was asking not for half of your heart, not not for your devotion when it was convenient or when it fit your schedule or when it made sense. He was asking for all of your devotion all of the time. Don't divide your devotion. Give it all to Jesus. Secondly, don't limit your love. Jesus said the Lord our God is God alone. And you ought to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. He didn't say with some, with enough, or a little bit, or what you think is appropriate. No, he said give it all to him. 
Give it all to him. Don't limit your love. And then third, don't wait to worship. Philippians chapter two says that he was given a name that is above every other name. And at that name, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, there's coming a day when everyone, everywhere, will worship Jesus. They will bow down on their knees and they will declare Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, when you put Jesus on the throne, there's only one posture. And it's not asking for a couple inches or asking Jesus to scooch over a little bit. The only posture that you come to the throne with is this one. Because Jesus is worthy of every bit of your life. And he needs all of your love and he needs all of your worship and he needs all of your devotion. And so this morning as we close this service, I wanna invite you to take just a moment to reflect on your life and where you stand with Jesus right now, because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so if we can, with everyone, heads bowed, eyes closed, I just wanna give you a moment to just reflect on where you stand with Jesus today. Some of you are here and you have never accepted Jesus as your savior. You've never made a decision to follow him or maybe you made a decision to follow him a long, long time ago and you've walked away and you're doing your own thing, you're living your own way and Jesus really isn't a part of your life anymore. Whether you've never made a commitment or you've walked away from him, today's service has been a day where you have felt as if God is knocking on the door of your heart. Jesus says in the book of Revelation, behold, I stand at the door, knock. If anyone would open that door and let me in, I'll come in. We'll have fellowship together. And we'll begin a relationship. And today, God wants to begin a relationship with you. If you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus and you'd like to start that relationship today, I wanna just give you a chance. And all I want you to do is just raise your hand. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm not gonna call you out. I just want you to raise your hand and say, I, you know what, I wanna start a relationship with Jesus. Would there be anyone who would do that today? I see that hand. Anybody else? I see that hand. For those of you who raised your hands, you can put them down. I just want you to pray this prayer with me. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it silently right where you're at. But I just want you to pray a prayer like this. God, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for his death and his resurrection. Thank you that through Jesus, I can experience forgiveness and I can begin a new way to live. God, I invite you right now into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Make me brand new and help me live every day and every moment for you. God, thank you for saving my soul. Thank you for changing my life. Now,
Now, for those of you who did that, we just want to congratulate you. We want to welcome you into the family of God. But I want to invite everybody in this room to just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for one more moment. Because there are other people in this room who have already believed in Jesus, already following Jesus, already living for Jesus. And yet this morning you recognize that maybe you've never put Jesus on the throne of your life. Maybe you recognize that you put him on the throne, but then you ask him to get off every once in a while. You just say, I'll take it from here, Jesus. I know that I put you on the throne of my life, but I want the throne back for a little bit. And you might be here today and you might just recognize that you want to put Jesus on the throne of your life once and for all to say, Jesus, this is your throne and you be the leader, you be the Lord, you be the one that everything flows through. So if you're here this morning and you say, I'm already a follower of Jesus, but I want to put Jesus on the throne of my life, I just want you to raise your hand. Again, I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want you to raise your hand up high. Hands are going up all across this room. Don't hesitate. Just put your hand up high and say, I want Jesus to be on the throne of my life. God, for every hand that's raised all across the sanctuary right now, I'm just praying that you would in this moment take control of those lives. Find your rightful place as Lord. You are victorious. You have been exalted. You are Lord. And right now, these people with hands raised are crowning you Lord of Lords. So become Lord of their lives and make them different and better through your work in them. And God, for those who have made new commitments to you and for those who have asked you to be Lord of their life right now, Lord, I just give you all of the thanks and all of the praise for what you are doing in this room right now. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we close this service, I wanna invite you to stand with me because the reality is, is that Jesus is victorious and he is exalted and he is Lord. And he deserves to be worshiped. So as we close this service, I want us just to have an opportunity to sing and express our love and our worship and our devotion to him. So let's sing together this morning and give him praise.